we're now live. Hello. Good morning. Oh, hey, how many are here this morning? Okay, well, I hope the rest of you will catch up as, as we make our way through the morning together. Well, this is, if I can count correctly, about the 11th message out of this little book called Titus. And we're almost halfway. All that to say, next week when we get together, we will actually conclude chapter 2 together. And chapter 3, I guarantee, will move much more rapidly than what we have been doing. But next week, again, I just want to highlight, uh, next week is at what time? It, what, what time is that? Yes, you get to sleep in, you get to take a little extra walk with a dog, drink a little bit more coffee, have a great morning, and then come to worship. So we're going to bring together the first and second services in one space, which means we're going to add about another 100 chairs, which means the parking lot's going to be relatively full. So if you're young and spry, please park at the, fire, at the uh, fireside room now, at the farmhouse, that's where. And, and so we can have plenty of room to get everybody into one space at one time. Next week's going to be amazing. It's going to be amazing. We have 10, 10 songs to be sung that connect together justification, sanctification, and glorification. Uh, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. If you ever want to memorize a portion of the Bible, I recommend that. It is a synopsis of salvation. And so I want to encourage you next week, we're actually going to praise God for the work of salvation in our midst. So, but... Before we can get to next week, we have to finish up the ethical exhortations that Paul gave to Titus to give to various people groups. We've already looked at the older men. How many older men do we have? Hey there, guys. Yes, 50 and older. Hi, Charlie. Good to see you. Um, and so we also spoke to the older women. I won't ask for any show of hands. Uh, we spoke to the younger women, and then we, last week we talked to the younger men. Today, today, to conclude this section, we're actually going to look at the exhortation given to none other than bond servants, or better known as slaves. Notice, Titus 2, verse 9. Bond servants, it is the Greek word doulos, slaves. They are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. It is guesstimated that there were about 50 million slaves in the first century Roman world. 50 million slaves. They were the common workers of the day. Since slavery, praise God, has largely been abolished, we won't necessarily draw direct applications to slaves and masters, but to today's, today's equivalent of this is employers and employees. I know as an employee, you feel like a slave at times, but we're going to draw together the uh, material before us today, and we're going to consider employer-employee relations. How is it that I am to honor God and to live and adorn the gospel in my workplace? Now, some of you have finished working and you're now in the retirement years. Hang on, because by the time we get to the end of the message, there's a special encouragement for you. So, with that in mind, I'd like to pray, and then I'd like to venture into the scripture together. Ah, Father, 
it's always good to gather together as the people of God. Sunday, the first day of the week, is so essential in setting our hearts and our minds correctly to make it through this upcoming week. And I just pray today that even what we talk about might help to orient our thinking so that we would be better equipped to honor you in what we do this coming week. Bless our time, I pray, in Jesus' name. And the people of God said, amen. amen. Thank you, thank you. So, when it came time to think up a Jesus image or, or metaphor uh, for today, uh, it was pretty easy. You know, when we talked about the older man, we talked about this idea of Jesus being our personal trainer, encouraging us to continue to strive towards holiness. When we spoke to the older and the younger women, we saw Jesus as the heavenly bridegroom calling us to a life of purity and fidelity. Last week, we spoke to the young men about the fear of God as we talked about Jesus being that drill sergeant, going to put the fear of God in you. Well, today, as we talk about employer and employee relationships, I, I want you to see Jesus, and this is biblical, I want you to see Jesus as your boss. Jesus is your boss. And I know what you're thinking right now. You're thinking, if only Jesus were my boss, things would be radically different. No, you don't understand. Jesus is your boss. Notice what the scriptures say. It says this, whatever you, what? Whatever you do. You, you may be a teacher, you may be an accountant, you may be an electrician, you may be a plumber, you may be a security guard, you may be a white-collar worker, a blue-collar worker, a government worker, a contractor, you're in the military, or you're retired. You might be a homemaker. Whatever you do, whatever you do, what? Work? What's the word? Heartily. Heartily is the word. Heartily. What does heartily mean? It means with your heart. Work with a sense of enthusiasm. Work with a sense of, of excitement. Work hard. Why? Because we serve the Lord and we do not serve man. You see that boss who's over you and you see his name plate on your desk and you're accountable to him? Actually, you're not serving him. You're not working for him. You're working for Jesus. And that ability to perceive and understand that reality has a transformational effect on our lives. If you've driven around much, you have probably seen this sign on the back of people's cars. My boss is a Jewish carpenter. And you know what? Your boss was a Jewish carpenter. Today he is the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And whatever you do, you work heartily. Because we serve the Lord and not just men. And so, with that in mind, Jesus being our boss, what he wants to do is he wants to train us. Here we go. Now, this is the portion of Scripture we're actually going to be singing into and speaking into next week. This is the part that I wanted you to memorize because it is so, so wonderful. But Jesus, our boss is training us. He's training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Those two words do a marvelous job of summarizing uh, most people's motivation in our capitalistic society. Most people are motivated by one of two things in what they do. 
One thing is pride. The other thing that motivates most people is greed. Between pride and greed, if you will, ungodliness and worldly passions, that is the motivation of the world. Ungodliness refers to those ambitions and uh, desires for success and power, seeking influence and control over others, looking for acclaim and self-aggrandizement. I'm great. No, God is great. You aren't. But that's one of the primary motivations in our world today. And the other one, worldly passions, has to do with stuff. Materialism, money, excess, personal comfort, lifestyles of leisure. Those are worldly passions. But our boss, Jesus, calls us to a radically different way of viewing and living out our lives. Particularly when it comes to our work. And he wants us to be motivated by self-control, upright, and what's the word? It is what? It's what kind of lives? I can't hear you. What does that mean? This is meant to be our motivation when it comes to work. This is meant to be our motivation when it comes to living our lives. We are meant to live godly lives. This is what that means. We are not motivated by power or greed or pride as all the people around us are. We are motivated by the glory of God. The glory of God is the ultimate motivation for the child of God. And that sounds so good. But what on earth is the glory of God? I really think we need to answer that question before we can actually look at the how we're supposed to do this. In Titus chapter 2, in, in looking at this, the how is, is right here. It's right here. So we're actually going to talk about the how in just a few minutes. But before we can talk about the how, we need to talk about the why. The why. You see, how doesn't motivate us, the why does. I could, tell, I could just break this down and we could call it a day. And we, we know how to do it, but we don't know why we're to do it. And so in the next few minutes, I want to take a few moments. I don't want to camp on this idea of the glory of God. I want to camp on this idea of, of why we work this way. Why we even want to do what this instruction gives us to do. I love what one man said. And I, I, I saw this a long time ago. I've actually had it in this, this series for a long time. I haven't had a chance to use it, so I'm going to use it. I love this. Notice what somebody has said. If you want to build a ship, don't drum up people to collect wood and don't assign them tasks and work, but rather teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. That's powerful. Do you see what it's saying? Get people to look out over the endless expanse of the sea and say, what, what's over the horizon? What's over there? Oh my gosh, it's so huge. It's so amazing. What's over there? I don't know. Well, why don't we find out? How do we do that? Let's build a boat. Okay. You see what you did? You used vision. You used something bigger than merely building a boat to capture the heart. And once the heart's captured, the how's done. And so too, when it comes to work, if we don't capture the grandness, the glory of work, then work is just something else we do, and I can tell you how to do it right. But there's no motivation in that. So, 
I want to spend the next couple of minutes talking to you about work, the immensity of work. In the wisdom and plan of God, I want you to see just how vast and beautiful and powerful and glorious work is. Here we go. You ready? Have I got you? How many are here? Okay, six more joined us on the trip so far. Good. I'm going to see if I can get the rest of us by the time we're done. I want to show you the importance of work in God's plan and in the wisdom of God. Here we go. As soon as you open your Bible, you encounter a book called Genesis. The word Genesis literally means beginning. And hence, it is the beginning of creation, it's the beginning of the, the plan of God, it's the beginning of everything. All the roots of, of all the great theological themes and truths of the Bible find their beginning in the book of beginnings, Genesis. You get two chapters into Genesis when all of a sudden you discover an important truth about work. And it's this. In Genesis chapter 2, in verse 15, it says, And the Lord God took the man, this is Adam, and put him in the garden of Eden, what? And, yeah. So the original purpose behind the creation of man, indeed, was to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. But how did man glorify God? By working, by serving God in taking care of his creation. And, and, and what happened in, in the, the really beginning of, of the Bible is as Adam and Eve applied themselves to the stewardship of God's creation, there was incredible satisfaction and great, great fruitfulness and incredible production. It was glorious. This is why man was created. This is why you were created. This is why I was created, to work. To work. And by the time you get to the other end of the Bible, so we're two chapters into the book of beginnings, when you get all the way to the other end of the Bible, at the very last chapter, at the very end of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 22, verses 2 and 3, notice what it's like in the eternal state in perfection. It says, the throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city, the new Jerusalem, and his servants will what? We're back to the original purpose. We were created to take care of God's creation, to glorify him by, by work. And we get to the other end. We, we get to this point in Revelation, and we're now in the perfect uh, glorified bodies. We're in the eternal state, and now we're going to work. Yes. So what I want you to see is work was never intended to be just something we tolerate. It is the very purpose for our existence. And when we get into the presence of God, it will ultimately be perfect. But something happened along the way. Something kind of screwed up this plan of God. And it happened very early on in Genesis chapter 3. Thank you, Adam and Eve. For they ate of the tree of the fruit of knowledge of good and evil, and indeed they sinned. And this was the judgment, Genesis 3, 17 through 19. Cursed is the ground because of you, Adam and Eve. Through painful toil, you will now eat of it all the days of your life. And it will produce thorns and thistles for you. And you will eat of the plants of the field by the sweat of your brow. You will eat your food until you likewise return to the ground from which you came. So what I want you to see is in the glory of this thing called work. Work 
was a good gift from God given to serve and honor him. Work is something that we will do in the perfection of heaven as a key way to honor and glorify God. So work was a gift, but work now becomes hard. And all God's people said, (laughs) and work becomes difficult, and work becomes painful. The good gift has now been skewed. Our hearts and our minds have have taken it and, and turned it into something other than what God intended it to be. In fact, I would like to give you a very brief synopsis of history. The history of work. Here we go. In the Hebrew culture, in the Hebrew culture, the beginning of our Bibles are in Hebrew. It is the older covenant. It is God's relationship with his, his uh, Jewish people. In the Hebrew culture, work was basically seen as a means to assuage poverty and hunger. You work and you eat. You don't work, you don't eat. That's Proverbs quite frankly. And so it was always seen as something you had to do because you got hungry. And so it was a burden, but you did it because that's what was required to survive. So in Hebrew culture, work was largely seen as something to assuage poverty and hunger. When you get to the Greeks and the way the Greeks understood the word work, You'll actually discover that in our New Testament, which was written in Greek originally, there are two dominant words in the original language that they use for the word work. Here's one of them. So in the Greek mindset, the word work is the word ergon. Ergon. What does that word sound like to you? Ergon. Agony. Yeah, it's the same root. Work and agony. That's how the Jewish, or I'm sorry, the Greek mindset understood work. Another word for the word work is kapos, kapos, which is always implies difficulties, trouble, toil, and labor. So in the Greek mindset, when it came to this thing called work, it was always this idea of agony or something that was toil and trouble and labor. The Hebrews saw it as merely a way of assuaging poverty and hunger. It was a burden. The Romans... They had 50 million slaves. How do you think they saw work? Very menial, very menial. If, if you worked, you were like a slave. No, no, no proper respecting person works. Now, you might be in politics. That's not work. We all know that. Or you might be in the military. I know that's work. But, but the idea is if you were a real person, you were involved in, in, in pursuits that were high and lofty, but you didn't do menial labor because that was beneath you. And so you had slaves in order to do this menial labor. Politics, military, good, work, bad. That's how it was perceived in the Roman mind. Now, when we get into this thing called the medieval period, we discover that there is a development of what's called class structures. And these class structures were rich noblemen with their genteel pursuits. You know, they read, or they had hunting parties, or they would go off to the lake for months at a time, and they would do, they were all genteel pursuits. It wasn't work, because you had peasantry. You had a peasantry class who was there to actually do the work. And so if you were rich, you didn't work. But if you were a peasant, that's all you did was work. And work was below you if you were well off. Well, sadly, uh, Roman Catholic theology actually helped to back up this mindset of work 
Because in Catholic theology, there was a sharp distinction between what was considered to be sacred and what was considered to be secular. Sacred work was that which was done by the religious population, and it was for God, and then everybody else was involved in secular work, which was largely sinners, as they said, we're religious, you're sinners, so the sinners did all the work. In fact, in Roman Catholic theology, when you come to do penance, one of the penance they give you is, I want you to go and do these menial tasks as a penance for your sin. So in, in, in the mindset of Middle Eastern, or Middle Eastern, in, in uh, medieval Europe, they had this differentiation between the sacred and God and secular, which was sinners doing a penance for sin. And so there was just this sharp demarcation between the two. So again, work is bad. As soon as you can get out of it, you're good. Get out of it. Well, along comes something called the Protestant Reformation. And the Protestant Reformation under none other than Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Knox, uh, Zwingli, um, people uh, like uh, John Wycliffe, John Tyndale, these great Reformed thinkers, these Protestants protesting against the Catholic Church, redeemed work. And they placed it again in its proper light, in light of Scripture and in light of the glory of God. I want you to see... Uh, what one man said, uh, this is the historical context for the work ethic by Roger B. Hill, Ph.D. Notice what he said. The Protestant Reformation encouraged work in a chosen occupation with an attitude of service to God. Think about these. Work is no longer sacred and secular. You're allowed to do what you want to do, but I want you to understand you do it for the glory of God, whatever that may be. You know, you may be an accountant, you may be a CFO, or you may be on micros, menial jobs thingy there, whatever that's called. Yeah, dirty jobs. If you're, if you're digging out a sewer, or if you're a CFO, it doesn't matter. really doesn't matter. The question is, are you doing it to the glory of God? So, now they viewed work as a calling and avoided placing greater spiritual dignity on one job over another. They approved of working diligently. In fact, some of the Puritan writers make this case. If you have a chance for job advancement and you don't take it, you're in sin. Because your goal as, as God's steward on this earth is to steward God's resources and to get as much as you can, not for yourself, but for the glory of God and the good of others. And if you don't take a promotion, then you're not actually being a, a, an honest follower of God. That's how they taught it. And so you were approved of working diligently to uh, achieve maximum profits. And then you were required, the, the, the Puritans required that the reinvestments of the profits actually go back into one's business. You're not allowed to get luxury out of your job. Your job was given to you by God and it was for the good of all. And so if you got reward or benefits from your job, you must take those benefits and put them back into the business so the business grows and more people are blessed. Imagine if the U.S. worked that way today. Can you imagine that? You're not allowed to take personal profits. You must reinvest them in the company so the company can grow so more people can have an opportunity. That was how the uh, Protestant work ethic got started. 
And so it allowed a person, they allowed a person to actually change from the craft or profession of his father, which was unknown in that day because sons always followed fathers in their professions. So all of a sudden, under Martin Luther and John Calvin, under the Protestant Reformation, work is good again. And it's of God. It's for his glory. It's positive. And this transformation in society was the forerunner of capitalism. Work is for God's glory and the good of others. I love this uh, little video uh, by John Piper on John Calvin and the power of the Protestant work ethic. The legacy of John Calvin in the Western world is one of absolute dependence on sovereign grace. And because of that, the unleashing of a tidal wave of industry that produced the world you see. It's called the Protestant work ethic. It was culture shaping. It was profoundly meaningful. It was labor to the max for the glory of God. Call it a paradox. Call it a paradox if you wish. But it's biblical and it's historical. Deep, humble dependence on God, sovereign grace, has produced world-changing achievements. Here's one more verse on this, and then I'll, I'll close. This verse I want to mark my life till I drop. Colossians 1.28 For this, namely presenting everyone mature in Christ, for this I toil, struggling with all the energy that he powerfully works within me. <laughs> you take away the quest for ego satisfaction and you put a person totally like a child dependent on sovereign omnipotent grace I'll tell you what happens toil happens industry happens creativity happens energy happens the unleashing of dreams happen work happens Joyful, exciting, I can't wait until Monday morning, work happens. How many know what TGIF means? It's not just a restaurant. Thank God it's Friday. Can I just say to you, that's not a biblical mentality. We do not work for the weekend. We work for the glory of God. We don't work for the bennies. We work for the glory of God. We don't work for the pay. We work for the glory of God. And God meets our needs. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all the things of life that you think you need, God will make sure you get them. We don't do what we do because of the way the world works. We do what we do because it glorifies God. And it unleashes, unleashes a tidal wave of toil when you understand the glory God gets as we serve him in our original purpose. I want to give you a little... Uh, beside uh, the point kind of a thing. Um, this is a strange little factoid. I'd like you to think about Europe for just a moment. The EU. 
the European Union. Now, most of these countries are tied together economically through the euro. Now, I want you to notice something. The member states that are becoming insolvent are Cyprus, Greece, Italy, Spain, Portugal, and South Ireland. What do they have in common? Every single one of them is predominantly Roman Catholic. Where they have a deep, deep divide in the mentality between what is sacred and what is secular. And if work is something that is bad, work is something that is connected to sinners and and doing penance for sin, then you know what? I can't wait to retire. I can't wait to get out of my job. I can't wait for the weekend. I can't wait to no longer work because work works bad, right? And so what we have is entire countries that are on the cusp of an economic meltdown because their populace believes that about work. Now, what is the economic engine of Europe? Germany. Germany is the country that drives the economy of the euro in all of Europe. What do we know about Germany? That's where Martin Luther was. This is where the Protestant work ethic came in. You work for the glory of God, not for the weekend. Work is good and it's for God's glory. Yeah. So we know that even today Europe is showing the signs of bad theology as part of its crumbling. And the ones that are carrying the entire uh, uh, United States of Europe on their back are the Germans. And they're the most industrious people you will ever want to meet. And it comes back to the theology of the Protestant Reformation and the Protestant work ethic. France, likewise, is the second largest contributor, but John Calvin spent much of his time in France pushing forward the Protestant Reformation. England is the third largest giver into the Union. Uh, Until now, they're now separating from it, but John Wycliffe and William Tyndale, these were the guys who said, no, work is good. It's how we glorify God. It's not bad. Don't run for retirement. Don't come under the government. Glorify God. And of course, the Puritans left under religious persecution and they wound up in America. The backbone of capitalism is the Protestant work ethic. Now, it was originally designed to be done to the glory of God for the good of others. In fact, they put very stringent regard, uh, restrictions around how you lived your life so as you would be constantly putting it back into your job so that others could be benefit. But when you take God out of the mix, it now becomes greed. What forces America to continue to move forward is not the glory of God, it's the greed of man. And there's a woman by the name of Ayn Rand. How many are familiar with Ayn Rand? She actually wrote a book called The Virtue of Selfishness. What drives capitalism? Selfishness, and it's good. No, it's not. Listen to me. No, it's not. That's why you wind up with a 1% and a 99%. That's why Oxfam recently came out and said, there are eight men who have as much wealth as the bottom 50% of the world. Eight men. How does that happen? Greed. Greed at its core. Selfishness at its core. 
But if we get back to the original purpose for which we were created, for which we will ultimately fulfill in the perfection of God's presence, if we today understand that work is for the glory of God and for the good of others, and in the, I get benefited along the way, but it's not about me. It really isn't about me. This is the vision of the scripture when it comes to this thing called work. Work. Okay. <laughs> Thank God it's Monday. Yes. Thank God it's Monday. Why on earth would you even say that? Well, let's bring some more meaning into work, shall we? I want you to understand this about work from the scriptures. Work. Work is worship. Say that with me. Work is worship. It is. Now, what we're doing right now is called Sunday corporate worship. How many of you enjoy being here? Other than when I'm yelling at you. <laughs> so, so what we're doing is we are coming together as the people of God in a corporate assembly. And here we are worshiping God through music, through the givings of our tithes and offerings, through uh, fellowship and connecting with one another. We're worshiping God through hearing his word and responding in obedience. I'm assuming that, and responding in obedience. Uh, but this is called corporate worship. Now let me ask you, what about the other 40 to 60 hours you invest every week? You know, that which takes the best hours of your week, that which takes the best energies of your day, that which takes the best years of your life. What about that? Well, that's work. No, that's worship. See? You see? If you divorce sacred and secular, all of a sudden work becomes something, a drudgery that I have to do. It's a necessary evil so I can pay my bills. No, it's not a necessary evil. It's worship. This is how we glorify God. It is by work throughout the week that we do what we were created to do for the glory of God. I love this old story. Many of you are probably very familiar with it. It's about a, a three men who were building a cathedral in France. And a person approached each of the men and asked them what they were doing. And so he walked up to the first guy, and the man was digging a trench with a shovel covered in sweat and mud. And the guy said, what are you doing? He goes, what's it look like I'm doing? I'm earning 10 bucks an hour. Maybe that's how you view your job. Somebody else he walked up to was driving a front-end loader. He said to him, what are you doing? The guy looked at him and said, what do you mean what I'm doing? I'm driving a front-end loader. Okay. Um, then he walked up to a man who was laying bricks. He said, what are you doing? He says, I'm serving my Lord by building a cathedral which thousands of people will worship the living God and bring him glory. Do you see a difference in mindset as to how you view your work and the difference it makes? Please get this. If you get nothing else, get this this morning. There are no meaningful jobs. Let me say that again. College would tell you otherwise. People would tell you otherwise. But let me just be frank with you. There are no meaningful jobs. There are only jobs that we bring meaning to. And I don't care if you're digging a ditch, driving a front end loader, or laying bricks. If you bring the glory of God to your job, you will discover the reason why you were created. And you will enjoy it no matter what it is. 
and God will get the glory. I've got to show you something. I'm just going to show you this in the book of Titus. In the book of Titus, there is this constant admonition. Hey, Titus, I want them to do good works. I want them to do good works. I want them to do good works. Six times in three chapters. Do good works, do good works, do good works. Because Paul tells us that on the island of Crete, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy. They're lazy. God's people will not be lazy. We are involved in good works, which is good work. Your job. Your job is good work. If it's done to the glory of God. And so in a culture where everybody just hates their job and they're living for the weekend, we're supposed to be radically different. I'm living for Monday. Hallelujah, Monday's here. And you walk into the office, they're like, what is wrong with you? I'm, I'm having a great time. I'm here serving God. Really? Yeah, he does that for you. He can change how you view everything, including your workaday world. Worship, a work is worship. Secondly, work is your calling. Work is your calling. Everybody wants to know what's God's will for my life. What's God's will for my life? Well, let me ask you, where are you? What are you doing? That's God's will for your life. We used to refer to jobs as vocations. Remember that old word? You say, oh, what's your vocation? You don't ever hear that word anymore, right? Maybe Votech school or something, but you never hear the word vocation anymore. But the word vocation is a very important word. It comes from the French, which means calling. What's your vocation? Oh, my calling is to this job. My calling is to dig ditches. My calling is to do this. You see, our jobs are our ministry before the Lord. It's not just coming to church and doing nursery. You know, all God's people said? Yeah, no. It's your everyday life. It's your everyday job. That is your calling from God. That's your ministry. Glorify him in it. Work is worship. Work is your calling. Work is loving your neighbor. Martin Luther. Martin Luther put a special stress on the dignity of all work. Observing that God cared for, fed, clothed, and sheltered, and supported the human race through human labor. When we work, we are, as they call it, the fingers of God, the agents of his providential love in the lives of others. This understanding elevates the purpose of work from merely making a living for ourselves to actually loving our neighbor and aiding the common good as a productive member of society. This is what it means to work for God. I'm productive in this society. I'm not here as a leech sucking life out of the common good. I'm here as a giver to the common good because this is how I love my neighbor, through my job, through my work. How many are being blown away this morning by these truths? I mean, really, this is the truth behind the reality of what we do. It's not, I'm living for the weekend, and it's not like it's a necessary evil. Oh, my gosh, no. This is worship. This is your calling. This is how you love your neighbor. And then lastly, this is your witness. Work is witness. Your job is the candle stand from which God calls you to let your light so shine before men that they may see your, what's the words? Good, good works is the plural there, but let me put it this way. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good work on the job and they may give glory to your Father who is in heaven. 
What does it mean to do good work? How do I, how do I have this platform? All right, good, I'm glad you asked. And that brings us back to Titus chapter 2. i got to get through this quickly because I've used all my time talking about the, the why rather than the how. Here's the how. How do I become a witness at work? How do I glorify God through my job? This is it. So, bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. We need to be submissive. Submissive to our bosses. The word submission literally means to order yourself under. It is reflexive, which means it is something we do to ourselves. We willingly position ourselves under those in authority over us. Have you ever noticed how one of the biggest uh, ways that we're called to honor God in our relationships is through submission? Submission to the government, submission to our bosses in the home, wives submission to their husbands, husbands submission to the Lord. Submission is a huge display of the work of Christ in a life. Submission. You say, but, but you don't know my boss, Pastor Bill. You don't know the guy I work for. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. This is the guy you work for. His name is Jesus. I don't care who the other guy is, but he's the one that we're actually in submission to. His name is Jesus. So we, do, we are submissive on the job. But secondly, we are to be well-pleasing. Not just pleasing, but well-pleasing. And this is to the people around us. And so it's talking about everything we do should be done with excellence. We should be excellent on the job. We should never settle for less than the best. We strive for excellence in our employment. And the reason is not for promotion, a raise, or job security, but it's to please our boss. Who's your boss? That's why we do it. That's why we do it. Not because of our earthly boss, but because of our heavenly one. So, we are to be submissive. Everything we do is to be with excellence. Uh, you know, we are to be respectful. To be respectful. We're not to be argumentative. Our goal is not to win debates. Our goal is to be respectful to all people, even if we disagree with them, because there's something more important here than just the job, and that's ultimately somebody's soul. So, we are respectful. And then... We are honest. We do not pilfer. That means we don't take anything home with us. We don't kife from work. We don't steal time. We're not at work on our phones. We're not at work on our computers doing Facebook. When we're at work, we're working. We're not stealing anything. Rather, we're adding value to the company and to our employer. Because ultimately, our boss is who? Our boss is who? That's right. And then lastly, we are to be dependable, but showing all good faith. All good faith. Faithful, available, teachable. This is how we are to work. The why, again, is the glory of God and the good of others. But the how is to be submissive, to be excellent, to be respectful, to be honest, to be dependable. I want you to notice that final phrase at the bottom. And this is vital. So that in everything, speaking to us, so that in everything, nothing's missing in that word, so that in everything, we may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. Listen, this is powerful. With these words, the Apostle Paul makes, he entrusts to believing employees the ministry of making the gospel appealing to their bosses, to our bosses and our coworkers. By giving this responsibility 
to believing employees, the apostle makes their bosses and co-workers eternity subject to the believer's willingness to live out the gospel. We are the Savior's representatives, responsible for the conduct that can lead to one's salvation. One person put it this way. Do you see what Paul just did? Now he's speaking to um, people who are in servitude. These are slaves. Do you see what Paul just did? Paul makes the superior's ultimate welfare dependent on their subordinate, thus making the subordinate master of his superior's future. Wow. You see, he's our temporal boss, but we know the eternal one. And while he may have temporal control over our lives, we, through the gospel, actually have eternal control over theirs. And we're called to live it out. In reality, the unbelieving superior is subordinate, who we should not discriminate against by withholding from him or her the witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Work, work, work for the glory of God and the good of others. Be submissive, be excellent, be respectful, be honest, be dependable. I'm going to give you my synopsis. Remember this, this statement? If you want to build a ship, don't drum up people to collect wood and don't assign them tasks and work, but rather teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. This is a Bill Walkerism. I'm going to put my own little thumbprint on here. You can give me credit, okay? I don't get much credit these days. Here we go. If you want to encourage people to work, don't tell them to suck it up. I put that in there for you, Dennis. Or simply give them tasks and consequences. But teach them the glory of work is the glory of God. You were created for this purpose. Don't waste your life. If people can grasp that, Work goes from being an agony and a burden and something that is awful and I can't wait to get out of work so I can have the weekend to this is how I'm called to live for God. This is my ministry. It's how I worship him. It's called my job. Now, there are some of you here who are retired. How many retirees do we have in the house? Wow, God bless you. Let me close with something from Francis Chan on an observation he's had about that. And I just want to respectfully say, um, I meet very few elderly people whose lives make sense to me biblically. Because I'm 44 years old, and every year I think to myself, I was thinking about it today, I just, I, I think about how I am closer and closer to the end of it all. I have so many friends who have passed away that are younger than me. And I go, man, any moment I'm going to see you, God. And I check my life, I go, is there anything I haven't surrendered? Anything, I, I don't want to be holding on to this stuff. It's like that game, Hot Potato. You know, remember we used to play that? We just don't want it. You know, you don't want to just pass it. Because when the music ended or whatever, you didn't want it in your hands. I almost feel like that way with my possessions and my stuff. Like, I want to give it. I want to give it. I want to care for the poor. I don't want to, at the end, have all this stuff hoarded, saved, doing nothing. And so I'm constantly looking at my life saying, God, I want to be ready to face you. And so I want to risk it all. I want to 
risk it all because man, I'm 44. I don't know how much longer I have. And every year goes faster, doesn't it? Like if, if you're 10 years old, it's like you're moving 10 miles an hour to get through the year. So then once you're 30, it's like you're moving 30 miles an hour. I'm like, oh, that's pretty comfortable. And then after a while, it's like, dang, that year, is it already 2012? You know, I'm going 44 miles an hour. Respectfully, I don't meet a lot of elderly that are really living like they're about to see Jesus and, and saying goodbye to the things of this world and letting go of that stuff. Honestly, I mean, how can you not be thinking about that and risking more than ever? Some of you are still buying stuff, like you're gonna enjoy it and saving some of the stuff. And I just think, man, my life has been about letting go, letting go, letting go, because I'm going, man, I'm getting closer and closer to the end, and I wanna live by more and more faith every year. And I just think we've been living so backwards in the States, where we do everything crazy when we're 18, and we go, oh yeah, I was crazy back then. You know, I'd go on mission trips, and I would, you know, and we would talk about, oh, those good old days. And I'm just saying, man, doesn't it make more sense that the older we get, the more we realize, okay, this, this world has nothing left for me. The church is in dire need of elderly people that are living radically for their faith. And some of these young people are dying to come under the tutelage of elderly people that seriously cannot wait to see Jesus and are living that way. Your occupation may be behind you. Your job may be behind you. But you have merely shifted into a different season of work for the Lord. Nothing has changed other than what you're doing. How many of you are going 60 miles an hour right now through this year? If you're 60 years old, you're going 60 miles an hour. How many are going 70 miles an hour? How many are going 80 miles an hour? Soon, every single one of us is going to crash into eternity. Are you ready? What are you going to say to the Lord? Is he going to say, well done? Because you glorified me all the way to the end. Or are you trying to live out the latter end of your life in this thing called the great United States of American retirement plan where you've worked hard for so many years, now you can just live it up the rest of your life until you meet Jesus. I don't want to be like that. I hope you don't either. I've talked about employer-employee relations. Jesus is still your employer. You've never stopped serving him. In fact, the older you get, the more heartily we should serve because we're that much closer to seeing him. Let's pray. Father, uh, thank you for redeeming work. Thank you for making what we do with much of our lives meaningful. Thank you that no matter what we do, if we bring meaning to our job, we have a meaningful job. I just pray, Father, that uh, each of us today would take a few moments, kind of examine our own hearts in light of what we've been talking about. Are we doing what we do for the glory of God and the good of others, or is it merely about us? That's the world. Please help us to get over ourselves and to serve you wholeheartedly. In Jesus' name, and the people of God said? Amen. Amen. Next week, 10 o'clock, right? Yeah. Awesome.